This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the Defense Department Cyber Defense moves into a higher gear. The new leader of the CMMC board tells you what's coming next. The Homeland Security Department blows away a cyber hiring goal. DHS's chief human capital officer explains how they did it. And the number one story of the week, the Department of Veterans Affairs resets its biggest IT project. Two experts reveal how the department can turbocharge its health records program. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Accreditation Body has its first certified third-party assessment organization. The board will certify more C3PAOs in the coming weeks and months. Matthew Travis is the first chief executive officer of the CMMC accreditation body. Matt, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What is the significance of having this first C3PAO in the life cycle of the CMMC? Well, hi, Francis, and good to be with you. You know, we, we think it's significant because after you know, more than a year of a lot of planning and building and talking, I think this is the first signal that we're breathing life into this CMMC ecosystem as we start to see that the gears moving. And to use a crawl, walk, run analogy, we're still probably, you know, this is a crawling, but I think it does signal that uh, progress is moving forward and we're, we're really excited about it. What's the vision that you have for the broad scope of C3PAOs? You've got one, more coming online, 20, 50. What's the scale look like at, at maturity in your view, Matt? So I'll say this, first off, there's two that have been authorized into the marketplace. So I wanna clarify that. And we've got a little more work to do on our end and on the Pentagon side to empower them to actually begin assessment. So while they're authorized to start talking to those dip companies looking to be certified, uh, we need to empower them with some doctrine and uh, access to the IT system. But that, that should be happening in the next few weeks. And, and right now, we, we know that the scalability is, a, is an issue to look at because we have over you know, 460 candidate C-3PO's in the queue. And so we work closely with DOD in the process of getting those C-3PO's assessed at CMMC level three, and then finally authorized and as you say, you know, certified accredited. So, that we, you know, we're, we're, we're holding off on putting any you know, milestones per year as the Pentagon you know, right now is, is, is internally looking at, at what some implementation adjustments might be made, but it's, you know, we're moving. And that's the message I want to convey is that the, the, the gears are moving, C3POs are coming to the marketplace and we expect assessments to begin uh, later this year. What are you hearing from the marketplace about what you're undertaking in this crawl, walk, run strategy, Matt? Well, not surprisingly, industry is certainly anxious to get started. There's always been, uh, I think, uh, some uncertainty about, you know, when is this really happening? Is this really happening? It is a phase implementation, but uh, I think we're now at the point now where things things are moving. And what we hear most from industry is there are still some issues that we need to clarify, which we recognize, and so does the department, uh, as well as, you know, the, the, the cost burden is, is, what is this going to mean to me, especially as a small business owner, and that's a topic that I know, especially with Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, Jesse Salazar is taking a very close look at that. What does the 
What does the threat landscape look like to you right now? You're a cyber veteran. You've been doing this a long time. What's the trajectory of the threat landscape look like to you, Matt? It's getting more significant or more sophisticated, Francis, and certainly uh, more aggressive. And I saw this when I was at, at CISA and, and frankly, just reading the newspaper say, you, you know, need access to Intel to see how that threat landscape has, has changed in the wrong direction over time. And so when I think about CMMC, it really is, I think, the very basic blocking and tackling that industry not only needs to, but would want to do, uh, obviously protect, you know, critical on uh, control of classified information, federal contact information, but also to protect themselves. So in addition to helping protect the defense industrial base as a sector, I think businesses have a very acute incentive right now, given that threat landscape, uh, to start investing in cybersecurity, uh, regardless of CMMC. It strikes me that the line of delineation is not so much whether a company can afford to do it, it's whether they can afford to not do it, given the level of sophistication and the increase in aggressiveness. Is that a message that you think might be helpful to you to try to soothe some of the concerns that industry has, Matt? It is, and one of the things we try to do is help help industry understand that threat landscape, obviously through unclassified exchange. But when you look at those, you know, those cyber threat actors, the, the big four, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, and those global cyber criminal syndicates, some of whom often affiliate with those four, you know, their tactics, techniques, and procedures are certainly getting better. But what's frustrating is that we're leaving the front door, the side door open because we're not taking those basic cyber, cyber hygiene measures, those things that, that we often you know, certainly encouraged and promoted it at CISA. And that's really what CMMC is about. When you look at those, you know, 17 domains, we're, we're talking about very basic things, the access control, configuration management, you know, how you, you know, do you know what's on your network? Those are the things that we're asking. We're not asking companies to, to invest in quantum computing. This is the, the adversary is coming through the doors that we're leaving open. And as a first step, we got to start uh, shoring up our house uh, because they're going to get more sophisticated, and it, this is the race with no finish line. We just have about a minute left, Matt. You mentioned your tenure at CISA. How does that experience inform what you're doing for the CMMC board? I think it helps because, as you know, Francis, we're very much a partnership-oriented organization uh, with really no regulatory authority other than over the, the chemical facility anti-terrorism standards. And so we, we had to make it so that the industry... Uh, federal government partners, state, local, tribal, territorial would, would want to work with us. And, and the CMMCAB, that's what we're trying to do too, make the standard more understandable, more accessible, make the process more transparent. So when companies invest their time, energy, and money to join the CMMC ecosystem, that they're getting a return uh, and that we're being responsive and that they understand they're getting a fair shake regardless of what company they are. Matt Travis, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Thanks, Francis. Coming next, the Homeland Security Department makes a huge dent in one of its biggest personnel problems. Straight ahead on Government Matters, 300 new cyber hires at DHS and more help is on the way. You're watching 7 News. Welcome back. The Department of Homeland Security will bring in nearly 300 new cyber employees after a 60-day cyber sprint. DHS has another 500 tentative job offers in the works, too. Angela Bailey is the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Angie, welcome back. Thanks for coming on the program again. What was the process by which you got more people than you wanted to at a time when everybody says cyber talent is among the hardest talent to identify in the marketplace? 
Well, first of all, thank you so much, for um, Francis, for having me on your show. I really appreciate it, especially the opportunity to showcase some of the great work that DHS was able to do in this uh, cyber workforce initiative. So I think the number one thing is that when DHS puts its mind to something, we can we can get a lot done. And uh, it, it took um, senior leadership level support. And in fact, it was driven from the secretary himself. He said, you know, look, we've got around 2000 vacancies. We need to set a goal of at least getting 10% of those hired uh, by July 1st. And let's see what all you guys can do to make it happen. And so we knew initially it was an aggressive goal, but when we started really digging into it and working with the components uh, and, and also with our cyber professionals, what we realized is we had this really rich and deep network of um, of contacts already, whether it was with academia or it was with like DEFCOM, Black Hat, et cetera, because we had these contacts already, we were able to really throw that net out there and really sell people, I believe, on the DHS mission, which is an incredibly important mission. And we've been in the press here of late with you know some of the things, everything from the elections to the pipeline, et cetera. And so I think it be, it was really an enticing um, mission set uh, for people and, and people really actually do want to serve their country. So in my mind, there's no better place than DHS and they rose to the occasion. When you bring these people in, they will be coming into what you're calling a distributed workforce. That's the way that you're approaching the idea of the remote work environment in the next year to two years to five years. What does that distributed workforce look like and how are you providing for something that you may not know today what exactly it's going to look like at some point in the future, Angie? Yeah, so, and I'm really glad that you used the term distributed workforce because that's that's really how um, I'm trying to phrase this conversation or at least frame the conversation around this idea of distributed workforce. We get so hung up on thinking that things are remote work versus telework and what percentage can do this and the haves and the have nots. And it's like, you know, it's sometimes you have to just step back from it all and say, haven't we been working in a distributed environment for a very long time? I mean, our Coast Guard cutters, they're not anchored in the Potomac tied up to St. Elizabeth's. They're actually out on the ocean doing their job that they need to do in a very distributed manner, meaning that the, the crew, the leadership, everyone else, they're not anchored at St. Elizabeth's, just as an example. Our border patrol agents, they also are out in a very distributed fashion, right? Um, and is so, and so, also is our cyber workforce. And so when when we think about this, what we have to start thinking about instead of, uh, you know, again, who can telework, who can remote work, we need to say to ourselves, we're already in this distributed environment. So how best do we make use of the technology? How best do we make use of our policies and our procedures and stuff to make sure that that environment works as efficiently and as effectively as possible? Mm -hmm. So in some cases, it may be that yes, you do work out of your home, but it may be in other cases that you come in because you have to go into a secure environment to you know, do some of the work that needs to be done. And then in other cases, it may be that we come in for opportunities to collaborate or to create or to celebrate each other. And so I think what you'll find is that what we're really starting to do is say, again, I'll just repeat this again, We've always been working in a very distributed fashion. DHS is over 250,000 strong across the globe. You couldn't get more distributed than that. 
And so making sure that we have the right kinds of technologies available, such as this, right? We're using Zoom right now to have this very virtual conversation, but making sure that in addition to that, what are other ways that we can make sure that we touch base with our employees, that, that they don't feel isolated, that they have the opportunity to come into the office when it makes sense to come into the office. Or again, like the examples I used of the Border Patrol or FEMA, uh, you know, who has to respond to a disaster or to our Secret Service agents who are out protecting the president and, and our high, you know, uh, officials. How do we ensure that in that environment in which they are not tethered to an office or to um, or to a cubicle, how do we make sure that we stay in touch with them, that they're heard, that they have the necessary tools and equipment that they need in order to be able to do their jobs? So um, I hope that makes sense, but you know that's that's just really the way that I am trying to steer the conversation uh, so that we stop getting so hung up on you know, the words telework and remote work and acting like as if that's some new phenomenon that's never occurred before. Angie, we have less than a minute left and I would be remiss if I didn't ask the new uh, best places to work in the federal government. Numbers are out, DHS struggling again. What is the agency doing year on year to try to not just move those numbers, but try to engage with your workforce more so that the numbers eventually move? That's the outcome rather than just an output. Well, you know, it's, it's a great question. I just want to shift it just a little bit to say that while the best places to work may still, you know, of course, label us as being the last in, in the federal government, it, we must change the way that we talk about this. DHS has improved in the last five years 13 percentage points. Um, I would argue that that's probably more so than almost any large agency, especially an agency the size of DHS. So it's like an aircraft carrier, right? In the middle of downtown DC. We've managed to shift the direction of that aircraft carrier in a very tough terrain uh, and, and made sustained progress. So it's not just a one-off year thing. It is actual sustained progress. How are we doing that? Very hands-on uh, leadership from the ground up and from the top down and from across. And so by staying in touch with our employees, making sure that they, we deliver to them the kinds of things that they need, whether it's employee and family readiness initiatives, uh, financial literacy, how to be socially connected, dropping down into their heart and asking their heart the question instead of always going from their mind. Those are just some of the very small things that, that we're doing, but the bottom line is, is that by sending them a message that we actually care for each and every one of them and that we're here to support them in any way possible to do their jobs, I think is actually making a difference. And so it's not complicated. It's just caring about each other and making sure that we deliver on whatever promises uh, that we put out there. Angela Bailey, thanks very much for joining me. You're more than welcome. Thank you, Francis. It's always a pleasure. Coming next, the number one story of the week, the VA's biggest IT project hits the pause button. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the solution might not be a tech solution at all. You're watching 7 News. Now the number one story of the week, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough, says the agency will revamp its electronic health records project.
Carol Harris of the Government Accountability Office told Government Matters this week one of the biggest issues the agency has is who talks to who and how about its technology issues. Gordon Bitko, Senior Vice President of Policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. He's former Chief Information Officer at the FBI. David Pounder is Executive Director of the Center for Data-Driven Policy and Director of Strategic Engagement and Partnerships at MITRE. He's former Director of IT Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Gentlemen, welcome. Dave, I start with you. I imagine it's frustrating to see uh, one of your former colleagues out here talking about the same things that you and I have been talking about seriously since long before Fatara even became law. What's your take on where that communication is today between CIOs and the other uh, C-suite leaders and other leaders at the tops of federal agencies, Dave? Yeah, well, Francis, uh, you know, and I think Carol's points are spot on. I think we need to continue to make progress on the authorities of federal CIOs. Uh, I think it's a mixed bag. You know, we still have some CIOs that need to be viewed as strategic business partners and really part of that executive management team. And if you look right now with what's facing uh, federal CIOs and some of the challenges, you know, the cyber EO and working with CISOs, the big legacy challenges we have, now's the opportunity to really step up and help deliver on mission outcomes and securing those agencies appropriately and really be viewed as a strategic business partner and continue to elevate uh, the authorities of CIOs and make them make ensure that they really have a seat at that executive table. Uh, Gordon, welcome. It's good to have you on the program. And apologies that the number one story of the week is not Pete Alonzo and his dominance of the home run derby this year. Um, what is the key for a chief information officer? What is his or her role in making him or herself valuable, demonstrating value to the other C-suite leaders as that strategic business partner that Dave's referring to? Francis, thanks for having me back on. And I wish we could spend the time talking about Pete and the Mets run to the pennant here at the end of the season. But to get to your more specific and relevant question, I think CIOs have to be embedded in the mission. What Dave said is, is spot on at the executive level, but that has to cascade down throughout the organization. There have to be integrated teams that consist of the CIO, representatives from the CIO's office, acquisition officers, security officers, and the business mission from day one, from the time that a project's being developed. That way the CIO can bring expertise to say, hey, there's a best in class commercial product already available that does what you're looking to do. We don't need to develop that. What we need to focus on is what your unique requirements are. How do we build those? How do we do those in a secure and effective and reliable way that ensures we get what you need rather than waiting until the delivery of the project and then the project managers first talking to the CIO. That's when we encounter real problems. So the key then, Gordon, is interaction and collaboration, not just at the C-suite level, but all the way down throughout the, the organization with acquisition, financial management, IT, and personnel, right, Gordon? A absolutely, continuously throughout the life cycle of the project, that's gotta be the culture of the IT and business to work together in the organization. It starts at the top, but it's got to, like you said, Francis, go throughout the organization. Dave, I saw you were nodding your head as Gordon was talking about that. What organizations, where organizations have been successful doing that? What have been the techniques that they used in order to achieve that success, Dave? Well, you know, I, I do think they do align with the business partners, but something that Gordon said I think sh struck home where you, got, you, you need to have that alignment down, but this alignment of the chiefs is very important. You know, right now, you know, we, we've always talked, Francis, about the CFO and the relationship with the CIO and the CFO. 
but the chief acquisition officer, the chief procurement officer. Now with the Evidence Act and we have CDOs and you know we're hearing about the strategic plans and the like, we need to really make sure that the chiefs are really aligned. They all play a critical role on delivering on mission outcomes. And I think being viewed as like a synergistic executive team of the chiefs is really, really important. And we don't consistently have that. There are pockets where that does occur. And I think where it does occur, we're delivering better on those mission outcomes. Gordon, I want to combine your policy position and expertise today with your CIO expertise uh, from your past life. Is there some legislative remedy that would drive that uh, a tighter level of collaboration than we're seeing today? Or is it just incumbent on the leadership in these organizations to say this is how we're going to do it moving forward? Uh, honestly, Francis, I, I, that's a great question. I, but my opinion is that it's a cultural thing in the organization. It's incumbent on the leaders. It's incumbent on the administration and Congress as they put senior leaders in place to ensure that they understand the importance of technology to the mission of every government agency now, and that they do think of their CIO, their chief acquisition officer, their chief data officer, their CISO, all the positions that Dave just mentioned, that those are all part of their senior leadership team. It's not the business team, the mission team, and the technology team as somebody separate, but that they are, are all a part. And that, that is a cultural thing. It's challenging just because of the difficulty in getting appointed positions confirmed, how long it takes sometimes, and the rate of turnover to really establish that culturally, but that's gotta be a priority for agency leadership. Gordon Bitko, David Pounder, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time, both of you. Thank you. For Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you'll find it at govmatters.tv, and you get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. Just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract 
to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA has got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want, here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.